Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good morning, everyone. Do not adjust your computers and your iPhones and your iPads or whatever other devices you use to watch or listen to the show. No, I am not Jason Davis, but this is Soccer Morning on WorldSoccerTalk.com. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com, sitting in for Jason for a few days as he takes a well-deserved vacation. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, it's the first vacation in Soccer Morning history. And so I'll be here in the chair today, tomorrow and Monday, coming to you from my home, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and we are going to talk a lot about Philadelphia today. You can be sure because of the U.S. Open Cup final last night, the Union fell in heartbreaking and dramatic fashion to Sporting Kansas City in a penalty kick shootout, 1-1 after 120 minutes, 7-6 in kicks from the spots. Joy for Sporting and for Peter Vermes and his players will have goalkeeper Tim Malia, who was one of the heroes of the shootout and made some big saves throughout the game on Later in the show, we'll also have my good friend Kevin Kincaid from KYW, the CBS affiliate here in Philadelphia. He and I spent a lot of time together covering the union, as you know, and there's so much else to talk about. We've got the NWSL championship game tonight. FC Kansas City with a chance to make it a two-trophy year for the Heartland. They go up against the Seattle Reign in Portland tonight. We'll have Stephanie Yang of SB Nation hopefully on later in the show. We're finalizing that arrangement we think we're going to get it done. CONCACAF Olympic qualifying starts tonight. Also, coincidentally, in Kansas City, it's a pretty good time to be out there. It really is. Uh, the United States and Canada at 9 o'clock Eastern time on NBC Universo. Yes, that's right. There's no English language broadcast for the Olympic qualifiers. As I reported yesterday, uh, no American television network bought the rights. Um in English, they were bought in Spanish by Telemundo and NBC Universal. Of course, they have the Olympics themselves. So uh, they were happy to have the chance to get that. And both those games on there tonight, the U.S. and Canada at 9 o'clock and preceding them, Panama and Cuba at 6.30. Now, I know we have some listeners uh, up in Canada and some viewers up in Canada. My understanding is that Tele Latino Network has the TV rights. I've heard they will also be streamed live on uh, the Canadian Soccer Association's YouTube channel, I would recommend checking in with the CSA social media feeds to get the confirmation on that. 
Headlines around the rest of the soccer world. There are always headlines around the rest of the soccer world, aren't there? Lots of people talking about the UEFA Champions League. Um, I have to admit, I watched the first halves of the games yesterday uh, on Fox's uh, you know, multi-match 90 sort of whip-around channel. Uh, and we'll talk perhaps tomorrow or Monday about Fox Soccer to Go and some of the other platforms that they have. Uh, I have a Fox Soccer to Go subscription, so I watch the uh, the multi-match whip-around feed, and I watch the first halves, and then at around halftime, I had a meeting I had to go to, and then it was time to head to PPL Park, so I I missed the second halves completely. I didn't know until I got home from PPL Park last night what the scores of the games were. But then again, as you all know, I care a lot more about American soccer than European soccer anyway, so I will break out my, my trusty notebook here. Here it is. And uh, we'll read about Champions League action yesterday. Astana 2, Galatasaray 2. The first ever UEFA Champions League point from a team from Kazakhstan. Uh, I would note uh, that Kirsten Schluitz uh, wrote a great piece on Astana for the soccer gods. I think it went up yesterday. Um, I tweeted the link out earlier this morning. Perhaps Trevor Hayward, the producer, will retweet that tweet on the Soccer Morning Feed so that you all... I uh, can go read the story about how Astana came to be the uh, the well-resourced team that they are, and it is not, folks, a fairy tale. Uh, I think you'll find that pretty interesting. It's a bit darker than that. Malmo 0, Real Madrid 2, Cristiano Ronaldo's 500th and 501st. A writer, not a mathematician. Home to Benfica, 2-1. to one. That's quite an upset. Manchester United 2, Wolfsburg 1. Ladies and gentlemen, an English team has won in Europe. You can, ga- you can back away from the edge of the cliff now. Uh, and if Kayla Knapp of Fox and all the other Manchester United fans out there are listening, I hope you're in a better mood now than you were when Wolfsburg took the lead uh, early in the game. The goal was scored by Daniel Caligiuri, and no, he is not of any relation to Paul. Uh, I did look it up. But it warmed my heart to see a guy named Caligiuri score a goal against an English team. Juan Mata with the penalty kick goal to tie the game, and then he assisted on the game winner. And finally, Manchester City 2, Borussia Mönchengladbach 1 in Germany. Sergio Aguero with the game-winning penalty kick in the 90th minute to cap the comeback. Europa League action today. Uh, a doubleheader on Fox Sports 1, Monaco and Tottenham at 1 o'clock, Liverpool and Sion of Switzerland at 3 o'clock. There are loads of other games, of course, including Celtic against Fenerbahce at Celtic Park. That's on Fox Sports, excuse me, on Fox Soccer Plus at 3 o'clock. You can get the whole Europa League TV and online streaming schedule on my blog, The Goalkeeper. The direct link is philly.com slash Champions League. And on that same URL, there is also the full TV schedule for the uh, the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament. There are games on NBC Universo. There are also games over the air on Telemundo, including this weekend, and also both of the do-or-die semifinals that will determine the Olympic bids. Those will be on Telemundo over the air on October 10th. Uh, in the afternoon and early evening, they'll be over and done with before the big U.S.-Mexico showdown with the senior national teams at the Rose Bowl in L.A. It is seven minutes past the hour. On the East Coast, it's 10.07 out in Portland, Oregon, where the NWSL title game 
will be played tonight at 7.07. Seattle and Kansas City at Providence Park. Over 12,000 tickets sold. It's going to be, according to Timbers owner Merritt Paulson, the biggest ever attendance for a women's soccer title game in the United States. That's great to see, and I'm sure by the end they'll have sold quite a few more tickets than that. One other European news item of note, Michelle Platini is a disgrace. And we'll leave it at that. You all know how much I've been paying attention to the FIFA scandal, and it's pretty clear now that Michelle Platini is just as corrupt as the rest of them. Before we take a break, when we come back with Kevin Kincaid shortly, uh, y'all can look behind. Sorry, I just bashed my microphone. That wasn't great for me, was it? Um, y'all can look behind me and see that I have, uh, I would quite say it's Jason's scarf collection, but I have a nice little one of my own. I've been fortunate enough uh, to travel around the country uh, and beyond covering this great game that we all love. I've built up this collection for myself, and I hope that it's a nice little backdrop for the show today. Let us take a break and come back with Kevin Kincaid of KYW, CBS affiliate here in Philadelphia. He and I were at PPL Park for the U.S. Open Cup final last night. We've got a lot to talk about. This is Soccer Morning on WorldSoccerTalk.com. When it comes to the USA against Mexico, this game is different. As Michael Bradley puts it, the passion, the colors, the respect, the hate. Soccer Morning listeners, I'd like to invite you to join me and Jared Dubois this Saturday for the USA versus Mexico broadcast on Rabble.tv at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. With Rabble, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the USA versus Mexico game on TV, press the mute button, and then head on over to Rabble.tv to listen to me and Jared on your desktop, through your iOS Android app, or through your mobile browser. Plus, before or during the game, you can join in by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. Or why don't you create your own broadcast, call one of your team's games. It's easy. Sign up for free today. Try it out. Join me and Jared this Saturday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for the USA versus Mexico on Rabble.tv, where it's your team and your call. All right. Welcome back to Soccer Morning. You all caught me checking uh, my Twitter feed here. Um, Looking at some of the questions uh, that folks have been sending my way. And obviously, there's a lot of talk about the television ratings last night for the U.S. Open Cup final. We will get them officially this afternoon. Uh, I'll be sure to tweet them out when I see them. The, uh, the first source usually uh, is a, a feed that you all really ought to follow, Sports TV Ratings, Robert Seidman. I think that you will find his stuff to be very interesting, and he's usually the first person who I come across with uh, the TV numbers, and uh, he is a soccer fan too, by the way, so he'll be nice to you. But please uh, be nice to him, if you wouldn't mind. Joining me now, speaking of television, somebody who knows the television industry inside and out because he works in it, Kevin Kincaid of KYW Television here in Philadelphia, our local CBS affiliate, who had a very busy weekend uh, helping to shepherd the network's Pope coverage. Kevin, I hope you've gotten some stuff. And yeah, I'm, I'm very familiar with TV because I spent, I think, I- 24 hours inside our studio on Saturday and Sunday. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with uh, <laughs> with the setup. But, you know, the Pope trip wasn't bad, man. You know, when somebody sticks to a schedule and, and they're at a location that they're supposed to be at at a specific time, yeah, guess what? Things actually work out pretty well. I'll tell you what, you guys did a great job broadcasting it, and I'm going to brag about Philadelphia for a minute, since in the coming parts of the segment we might say some not-so-nice things about it. This city did a brilliant job of hosting Pope Francis over the weekend. I'm certainly not Catholic, as people know, uh, but it was great to see so much buzz in the city, mm-hmm. to see 
the streets of Center City closed down and people were able to just walk around freely and lots of great people in town who enjoyed their time here. I think we did a pretty good job. Now, Kevin, for the not-so-nice things. Um, we'll talk about the game itself in a moment. Uh, I want to say one other thing about the TV ratings. and People were asking me why it is that so few people in Philadelphia specifically uh, didn't... Uh, so few people in Philadelphia watched the game last night. I get the overnight... Uh, Nielsen ratings uh, from a, a source in town every morning, as I'm sure, Kevin, you do as well. And uh, mm-hmm. I get the top 68 or 70 or so most watched cable programs from the previous night. And the U.S. Open Cup final, Kevin, was not in it. But as is the case almost every night and every day, the worst team in Major League Baseball was right up near the top. And that would be the Philadelphia Phillies. So I think that speaks a little bit. You know, everybody was talking about the uh, the lack of attendance yesterday. I saw some Kansas City folks, including some people who I really think should have known better, uh, trying to claim either directly or indirectly that because the union couldn't sell the game out, they didn't deserve to host the final. That's a load of hogwash, and I think especially that people in Kansas City need to remember where they came from. Uh, but Kevin, uh, as you and I know, as a lot of people who were in that press box from the local media last night know, this market is there for the union to take, and they haven't taken it. Yeah, especially for you know, this season. At the beginning of the season, what we had, kind of, what I had kind of harped on for a long time was, you know, you look at the scene in the rest of the city. You know, the Sixers are what they were, you know, tanking and rebuilding. Um, the Phillies, everybody knows, you know, what they're approaching—a hundred losses. I don't know if they're going to get there or not. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers were disappointing again this year. And really the only thing the city had to hang its hat on was the Eagles, who it looks like they're not going to be that great either. So, you know, to me it was a missed opportunity, again, uh, to see how the union came out this year and, you know, sort of failing to take advantage of that wide open, um, you know, opportunity in front of them. The window was wide open for them to just go out, win a few games, uh, give people a winning product, something to watch. Because, you know, again, in, in March when the season started, they were coming off the tail end of a terrible Sixers season, a terrible Flyer season, and uh, nobody else is really doing anything. Nobody else is playing, you know, unless you're a St. Joe's or a Temple guy or sort of one of the provincial, you know, college basketball kind of people uh, in town. You know, that's that's sort of, it is what it is. And, you know, one of the reasons that people weren't watching the game last night and one of the reasons that people weren't down there is because Philadelphia hasn't put a winning product on the field. And, uh six years, you know, so, you know, people are going to sort of stay away from that, obviously, you know, beyond that, you know, you have a large portion of your fan base, it's families, suburban families with kids who go to school and whatnot, and so when it's a little bit colder, um, it's September, you know, school's back in session on a weeknight, are you going to take the family all the way down there and pay $40 per ticket? You know, probably not, and that's why the attendance is what it was. And it's not just that people didn't want to go to the game last night, this team has not done a great job. As you said yesterday on the SiriusXM show, um, this team really just has not done a great job of marketing itself to the soccer fan core in this town. In the way, and I'll give you a great example. You know, I was on um, the Two Solitudes podcast with Kevin Laramie and Dwayne Rollins, both of whom are on this show often. Recently, we were talking about this very subject and the fact that Toronto FC, for as awful as they have been over the years, they have resonance in that market because they did the legwork to get the job done and to get people to come out and to build a fan base. Real Salt Lake is still packing the place, um, even though they're, they're not 
at the moment as good as they have been over the last few years. Um, Montreal has resonance in its market, even though Joey Saputo doesn't always think so. If you look at your average, even just your income impact practice, there are so many more media members uh, there than there are in Philadelphia or Chicago, which is another market uh, that it is an incredible sports town like Philadelphia, one of the best in the country like Philadelphia. And if you all don't believe me, wait until the baseball playoffs get here and the Cubs take the field. Um, these big markets, Kevin, Major League Soccer needs Philadelphia to be successful, to be big, to be winning trophies, to be resonant in the market, and it's not happening. No, and you know what? It's, it's interesting to me because Philadelphia, you know, we talk about the union, and I tell union fans, you know, you and I work in the sports media, so we see it a little bit differently. It's not that the union aren't even that popular or can't get fans. I mean, we, we can't even get Philadelphia Flyers or Philadelphia 76ers talk on local sports radio. You know, forget the union. We can't even get the other two, two of the other teams in town. Um, you know, college football, Temple is look, looking pretty good this year. Nobody really cares about them. You know, college basketball, if you went to a big five school, you're probably interested. But if you, if you didn't go, you're probably, probably not well, interested. Well, now wait a minute, because I did. And so you know what I'm going to say to that. Well, but no, exactly. I mean, like, but how many people, you know, the people who didn't go to Penn or Temple or LaSalle or whatever, did they, are they really paying attention? Um, I don't know. You know, that's that's the trouble too. That that even college-wise, I mean, you have you know five schools that are playing basketball, six schools that are playing basketball in the city. And Philadelphia, I mean, more than anything, it's just an old-fashioned city that doesn't like things that are new or different. They have the same people who've been going down to the shore for 20 straight years because they don't want to try a vacation anywhere else. You know, they make the same food, they do the same things, they go to the same places. Because Philadelphia is a city that just likes familiarity. You know, they know this place on the corner, they know this bartender, they know this restaurant, they know what they're going to get. And, you know, are they going to drive 25 minutes down to Chester for something completely different and something that they don't really care about? No. But, you know, I think one of the problems is you do have soccer fans in Center City who don't give a flying crap about the union, you know, who will go and watch Arsenal and Chelsea and whatever, and Fado and, you know, some of the bars in Center City. And, you know, they really haven't, I think one of the issues is they haven't been able to attract the soccer fan uh, to come see MLS. And I think the different, I think the problem with that is that those people are like, well, you know, this is an inferior product. You know, they're not a winning team. And I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch Manchester United on TV instead. Yeah. I want to cut you off there for a second because I actually, and granted, I am one of those people that goes out to bars every night, that a lot of those people who live in Center City and who, like me, don't have a car, and I'm not afraid to tell the listeners out there, Kevin, you've been kind enough to give me rides home from PPL Park plenty of times over the years <laughs> when it has not at all been necessary. Um, a lot of those folks, they are union fans. And they support the team and they want them to do well, but they're not going to make the schlep down to Chester um, for the money and the time if they don't think it's going to be worth it. And they don't think it's worth it. And it's not that they don't care and it's not that they don't root for it. But when you look at the union's lack of results and the lack of good soccer over the years, part of me doesn't blame them. We got a question just now from Mark Fishkin. Uh, renowned um, devotee of the New York Red Bulls, who says he is not so sure that Major League Soccer needs Philadelphia to be successful. I'm going to offend him for a minute. Philadelphia 
can drive television ratings for Major League Soccer in a way that his Red Bulls cannot. In a way, in fact, that New York City FC cannot. Perhaps New York City FC might someday. I mean, the Red Bulls are good, don't get me wrong. And City, the Red Bulls and City both are good TV rating straws. But Philadelphia has an ability that few cities in the country can match. And I don't think New York can match it in this regard to be able to draw mass audience and local share, which is the percentage of the people who are watching. Not very many markets in the country, Kevin, can do both of those things, but Philadelphia can. Do you remember when, uh, you know, Smarty Jones had a shot at the Triple Crown? They were going to parade a horse down Broad Street. Do you remember when the Little League baseball team made it to the Little League World Series last year? Uh Uh-huh. I mean, if people are going to go crazy for Little League baseball and for, you know, a horse in in Philadelphia, then, you know, surely they can get behind soccer, you know, and the, the, the common thing that... The Taney Dragons and Smarty Jones, you know, it was that they were they were winners. You know, they had a chance to win something, and uh, you know, you have to establish yourself. You you have to put a winning product on the field, and all of these other things are important. The location, you know, how hard it is to take public transportation down to Chester. Do you want to go to Chester in the first place? Is the product inferior to you know EPL or whatever? I mean, all of that can be remedied by just winning a couple games. I mean, look at what happened with Montreal when they signed Drogba. Yeah, I mean, now that place is sold out. It's a fabulous atmosphere. But they they like Philadelphia. If the team isn't winning, they aren't necessarily going to go all... When they win, they go all in. And when they don't, they have other things to do. Apathy is worse than antipathy. And yeah, there's a lot to do. There's, there's certainly a lot to do in Philly. I mean, you know, you go down to the shore every week. I mean, you got big concerts. Yeah, Philadelphia is a big city. It's the top five biggest city in the in the country. And no disrespect to Kansas City because I've never been there and I don't claim to know anything about it. But I mean, the, the people. I don't think you can understand the dominance of the Philadelphia Eagles and to a certain extent the Philadelphia Phillies over the last couple of years. You know, before they started to to slide. You know how much they dominate the local sports scene here. I mean, literally, you listen to talk radio. Uh, in this town, it's, it's the same Eagles topics over and over and over and over again. You can't even get a sniff of anything else here. So it, it's it's not to say that those other cities, you know, don't have other decent teams or whatever, but it's definitely different in Portland and Casey and Columbus, you know, to Philadelphia. And I, I think maybe the Revs it might be a good, you know, example. I mean, Boston's Chicago, a Chicago, Boston, town, right? and Philadelphia. Yeah, Boston and Philadelphia are are two are unique in that regard. I mean, it, it's going to be completely different. New York's got enough people, a bigger population, where they're going to come out and support NYC and and the Rebels. But Boston and Philadelphia are old school provincial towns with like baseball and football, and you know it's not going to change until you put a winning product on the field. I have seen in the years that I have been here, the Philadelphia Soul, the Arena League football team, be on the back page of the Daily News. I have seen the Phantoms, the minor league hockey team, be on the back page of the Daily News after they won a championship. And I've seen the Union be on the back page of the Daily News a couple times. I've seen the Women's World Cup this summer be on the back page of the Daily News. It can be done. Now let's talk about the game. And there's really only one question about the game, I guess, at this point, Kevin, and that's the goalkeeper substitution. Everybody was ready to roast Jim Curtin, except that it worked. How about that? I didn't have a problem with it at all. And again, look, I mean, Jim Curtin was, was ready to start 
John McCarthy in this game um, if it wasn't for the great performance that Andre Blake had on Saturday night. I mean, we were essentially looking at the same starting lineup from Houston being the starting lineup from this game. I don't have a problem with it at all. John McCarthy saved three penalties against Rochester in the first round uh, to put them through on penalties, and then he saved uh, you know, a penalty against the Red Bulls in the quarterfinal on the road. So I, I didn't have a problem with it at all. John McCarthy even saved the PK last night. So you know, right he on a bunch. In, he gets right on a bunch of them. And, look, credit to Kansas City and, and most of the guys from Philly, too, for hitting some great penalties last night. I mean, it was wet. You know, they just played 120 minutes. I mean, those conditions were not easy to play in. And a lot of those guys hit some unstoppable penalties. But I don't have a problem with the John McCarthy substitute at all. I mean, he put them in a position to win. But they had a chance to do it. And they couldn't get it done. I think if fans are going to be critical of anything, maybe the fact that Andrew Wenger um, was subbed in over Eric Ayuk. But, you know, and I think Jim Curtin played it pretty well. I think the one that, the one that I might have made you know, I might have I might have done Stephen Vittoria for Maurice Adu, and I might actually have done it right around the the time when the McCarthy move came in. But yeah. you know, Maurice Adu, John, uh, Jim Curtin said afterward that Maurice Adu was pretty adamant that he could he could keep going and grit it out. It it didn't happen, which is unfortunate. But other than that, Kansas City. I mean, look, we saw last weekend Kansas City played Seattle to a tie. Ben, ben Peter Vermes held all of almost his starters out. Almost all mm-hmm. his starters were out of that game until late in it. Kansas City has built and that's what the union don't have, holding on to his substitutes until late in the game for a couple reasons. One, because that's how Ziggy Schmidt beat him last year, by holding mm-hmm. substitutes until extra time and then bringing Obafemi Martins in off the bench. Um... Well, I don't think it was. I mean, this this year, I don't. I don't think Kansas City's bench was nearly as strong as Seattle's last year. You know, it wasn't like they were bringing you know world world but, you know DPS off no, the bench. No, but my <laughs> my point is my point is that there's such a drop off in quality from the Union starting lineup to its bench that you have to look at that bench and to say, okay, if I'm going to make a substitute, am I going to do it just for the sake of substituting, or am I going to make a substitute that's really going to make the make my team on the field right now better. Well, listen. I mean, the, the thing is that it, it's the hardest thing I think as a coach is to you know you have guys who want to gut it out and guys who want to step up and take a penalty. If Maurice do wants to be that guy, he's your captain. He wants you up and take a kick. Andrew Wenger steps up. He wants to take a kick. I mean, the, the hardest thing is to decide. Hey, do I let them let my guys do their thing and gut it out, or do I decide? Hey, I don't think you're in the right you know state physically or mentally to do this. You know, and there was this sort of a something on Twitter last night where Shane and Williams came out and was sort of criticizing people for going after Andrew Wenger, and um, you know, whatever that's fine if he wants to, you know, come to the defense of his former teammate or whatever. And, and Shane was sort of saying, look, Andrew stepped up. He wanted the penalty. Um, he wanted to, the responsibility. He wanted to be the guy in that spot. That's fine. But then at the same time, if you're Jim Curtin, do you say, look, Andrew Wenger's had a really, really tough year? Mentally, he might not be there. He's only recovered from a concussion a couple weeks ago. He's been off all season long. It's not just a temporary thing. You know, mentally, you know, confidence-wise, is he a guy that I want stepping up there and taking a penalty? And, you know, we asked Jim that after the game last night. You were there. And he said, yep. look, you know, we, we thought he could give us some fresh legs. We didn't think he would be the seventh or eighth kicker. You know, we didn't think we would get to that in penalties. So, I mean, to, to, to be critical of that, you know, when it got that far into the shootout, I mean, it's kind of hollow. But at the same time, I mean, you could make a case that Eric Ayuk, uh, you know, could have been the sub instead. 
Um, I, you know, I just think that Andrew Wenger was a guy who's just been off all season long, and it's been tough to watch. And, um, you know, maybe you could make a case that they probably should have left him on the bench and put somebody else in there. But, uh, you know, I don't know. That's all That's all hindsight kind of stuff. I think that, you know, Philly was great in the first half. Casey was great in the second half and really, really shored up the defense and really patched it up. And then they made one more penalty than the Union did, and that's really all you can say, I think. So that was the story until right about when you and I were getting ready for the for Jim Curtin's press conference. And then the word started getting around of something that was going on outside PPL Park, and I want to spend the rest of this segment focusing on that. Fair or not, um, I think it's going to be the lasting image of last night for a lot of people. Jay Sugarman, the union's owner, is based in New York. And to get to the game last night, he chartered a helicopter and he landed it um, on the fields outside PPL Park. And not only did he, I'm pulling up uh, some notes that I took about it last night and something that I got from a source of mine uh, that I wanted to play. we go, that I wanted to point out. Um, there was a four by four kids event on the field where Sugarman landed his helicopter um, that they had to clear out so that he could land. He gets off the thing. He doesn't shake hands with anybody. He doesn't say hello to anybody. He goes in the stadium. And then right after the trophy presentation, he leaves the stadium and the helicopter takes off and goes away while all the fans are stuck in the traffic line to get out of the stadium. So he's chartering a helicopter, Kevin. And he's the principal owner of one of the most frugal teams in Major League Soccer. You're in and you're out. Um... That's a really, really bad image, the kind of image that would define him for a long time to come. I have defended Jay Sugarman over the years um, against critics because I think that as a, a compliment that I would pay to him is that he knows what he doesn't know, so he delegates. I think he delegates to the wrong person uh, in Nick Sakevich. I have said that many times over the years. Uh, and I'd say again today that I think Nick Sakevich is the biggest problem with this organization and that the the union, I think, based on all of the years that I have covered the team, all of the years that I have covered him with the Metro Stars before he came to the union, I don't think that the team has the savvy to win a trophy while Sakevich is in the building unless he really gets out of the way. And considering how strongly they shot down the Octavios and Browner rumors, um, it means that they're still not going to have somebody who's fully overseeing all of the player personnel matters above Chris Albright so that Nick Sakevich cannot play a role in it. Somebody who can stand up and they can say, no, we're not going to do that thing that you want to do. I think it was, Kevin, uh, you know, the, the, the helicopter thing. The helicopter thing to me was more, you know, you use the word uh, image, right? I, I think it was more symbolic 
of the way that he's sort of been out of sight, out of mind for all these years. You know, the fact that, and I wasn't there, so I'm just going by what, what you just what you just told me. If he gets off the helicopter and he just walks in the stadium, doesn't really say anything, and then he gets out and leaves. To me, that's more of the story than how he got there. You know, I mean, the guy does have money. You know, he has other business interests and ventures and things like that, and then the union has its own separate budget or whatever, right? So, I mean, whatever. This is the only time the guy's ever done it. Most of the time he drives all the way down here from New York. Um, it, you know, symbolically and image-wise, it looks a little tone-deaf, you know, especially to the fans who are saying, you know, we're paying this much for season tickets and, you know, we don't have a winning product and we don't have a DP and, you know, we're, we you know, we're, want to spend more money. Um, but practically, you know, the guy is a millionaire and, you know, if he wants to, you know, if there's a special reason that he has to get out of New York on a weeknight and take a helicopter, come down. I mean, whatever, I get it. You know, it was more of the image of it, <laughs> you know, landing it <laughs> on, on the practice fields of everything, you know, and I was sitting in the stadium at the time, so I didn't know what the hell was going on, but people were texting me and hitting me up on Twitter saying, Hey, what's with the helicopter? I'm like, I have no idea. Cause we were looking at the field and I couldn't see anything coming, but you know, it's just, it's just the fact that, you know, you talk about Nick Sikiewicz and, uh, you know, I, I, I know that people aren't happy with Nick and people don't think he's done a good job and he hasn't really communicated to the fan base that well, but you know, and he's also not the one that comes up with the budget, you know, and, uh, you know, it's not, he has the most resources to work with either. So, you know, I think if you want to point but, the finger, but he's the guy, point he's it, the guy who has to decide how to spend it. And there are so many other GMs and technical directors and team presidents around major league soccer who have proven that they can do it. Kansas City obviously is the best example with Rob Heineman and mm-hmm. Peter Vermes. I, I just, I don't know. I, I've said it so many times, Kevin. And you and I have both had our run-ins with Nick over the years. We have seen how thin-skinned he can be. Heaven knows, you know, look, what do I have to lose at this point? He's threatened to ban <laughs> me from the press box before. You lost a gig working with the team because in part of a role that he played, did you not? Well, yeah, I mean, it was my decision to leave, but yeah, there were certain complications that involved specific people. Yeah, I'll say that. All, all of us who cover this team have had our run-ins with him. And he's been an executive in Major League Soccer for, in various ways, various teams, almost since day one. And he hasn't won a thing. Ever. No trophies. What what has to happen? The, the sons of Ben have to, are the only ones who can effect change. You can't, I can't. John Smallwood of the Daily News, Bob Ford of the Inquirer, it doesn't matter. The fans have to do it. They're the only ones who can. But what what else is there to say at large cross-section of the fan base that, that- you know, thought that if they won that game last night, that that would be bad because Nick Sikiewicz and Jay Sugarman would be able to come out and say, hey, guess what? We won. We won a trophy. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Um, we're, on the, we're on the right path here. And uh, one guy even, you know, hit me up on Twitter and said, hey, I think it's better that we lose, you know, so that we don't have to hear that. And, uh, I, I mean, I, I disagreed with that, obviously. I mean, I think, you know, you, you play to win, and you play to win trophies, and that's kind of the whole point. And, yeah, you would be saddled with these guys, and maybe that prolongs something that shouldn't be prolonged. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 I've, I've been sniffing around, that I'm hearing some stuff that's going down in the front office. I don't know if that happens soon or happens later. I don't know if it happens at all. 
but um, things aren't good right now um, with the union front office situation. And, uh, you know, again, they're going 10 months. Oh, it's almost been 11 months now that they said they were going to hire a sporting director, and they haven't. So um, I don't know. You know, again, too, Nick Sikiewicz is a part uh, owner of the team. He has a financial stake in the team. So it's not just about firing somebody or getting rid of them. I mean, there would be a financial thing involved there. I guess he would have to be bought out. Does Jay Sugarman want to sell the team? I don't know. Who, who wants to buy it? Uh, what's Richie Graham's situation, the guy from YSC who kind of controls the academy and then the, uh, you know, King Prussia location? Um, I don't know. There's a lot going on here. But, I, I mean, if you're, part, if you're part of that crowd, part of that union crowd that says, hey, maybe, you know, it's a, it's a win-win. If we win, we win a trophy. If we lose, then, you know, there's more pressure on the ownership. Um, then I guess you got your way last night. But it's just it's just really tricky. I mean, yeah, six years, not much to show for it. You know, you'd figure a shakeup has to come at some point. <laughs> you know, as, as I said earlier, I've given Jay Sugarman the benefit of the doubt a lot over the years. I can't anymore. I just can't anymore because of that last night. Obviously, I haven't given Nick Sakevich the benefit of the doubt for a long time. People, people know me well enough by now. Um, I feel terrible for Jim Curtin because I believe that he is as good a coach as Jesse Marsh and Carl Robinson and that he, if he had the resources that they do, both financially and savvy-wise in their front offices, not just money, not just straight-up talent. I'm talking about front office savvy and the ability to go out and really get all the players that he wants. He would be able to show that he is just as good a coach as they are. And I'm not sure. I know that Jim Curtin and Jesse Marsh were the two finalists for this job. I'm not sure that Marsh would be as successful as he is with the Red Bulls if he were in the union's position now. Because I just don't see it. Well, it's it's just you know I I, I make a comparison to to Jay Heaps, uh, you know, and Jay Heaps and Jim Curtin were sort of the same kind of guy, you know, center backs who played in you know MLS in the in the you know 1.0 kind of era. When they took over uh, their first coaching jobs, they really didn't have a ton of support, a ton of resources from their their coaching staff, you know. Jay Heaps, you know, to New England's credit, you know, they went out and they tried to get a guy like Jermaine Jones. You know, they made some shrewd signings like uh, Jose Gonzalez or Lee Wynn and you know, really identified the right players and, and had more involvement from the front office. Yeah, they're still playing on a football field. And, yeah, how much does Bob Kraft really care? I don't know. But you see the turnaround from, from Heap's first year and second year to where they are now. Um, and there's no reason that Philadelphia can't do that. I mean, you know, New England is the same kind of franchise as, uh, as Philly is. You know, they're playing in a, they're a big city, quote-unquote, big big market kind of team that plays in a satellite city, um, you, you know, but they're they're obviously not a, you know, a Columbus or a Kansas City or something that they, you know, New England does have resources. It's just, you know, deep pockets and a short arms kind of thing, which is probably the case with Philly. You know, even with Jay Sugarman's, you know, financial issues aside and the stock prices and you know, his money being in real estate and his, his uh, you know, the, the housing market collapsing and whatever, you know, he still has money to spend. You know, it's just that there's not a lot of it that's allotted to the union right now. And um, I think if you ask anybody in that front office, we'll say, guess what, we've pushed for more investment, we've pushed for this. You know, not 100, but the way the stuff came out about a month ago, you know, I reported that, you know, they were ready to spend $1, $1 million on him, seven figures on him. And so I guess, you know, he does have a little bit more money to spend if he's convinced. But, you know, I don't know what it takes to convince him to do it. And, I, you know, I had heard that the Octavio Zambrano deal was done. 
I wanted to get one more source before putting it out there. Obviously, Dave Martinez got it before I could, and, and that's uh, all the credit to him. And boy, did the pushback come hot and heavy from the union that it wasn't going to happen. Um, it did, and that means I want to make one last point. They don't normally do that. Yeah. Yeah, really. I've, I've rarely seen a pushback that strong. It's funny. I'm Maybe this is the D.C. native in me and how much I've followed politics over the years. You push back that hard on something almost makes me think that okay. it is going to happen. Um, last thing. We talked about the fans being the people who have the power here. And I'm just going to say this and get your opinion real quick on it, and then we'll get out. Um, will the Suns, sh- well, will, should, whatever. The Suns and Ben had that protest earlier in the year, and I've clashed with them and their leadership over the years, and I've said some things that they don't like, and mm-hmm. usually yeah. we end up making up. I'm going to say something now that they're not going to like. If they're going to protest again, Kevin, it can't stop at the gates of the stadium. And I know they said last time around that they didn't want to take it into the gates because they didn't want to offend the players. The players are smart enough to know that it's not about them. What's the next step for the Sons of Ben? Are they going to do it? Are they going to say, in the river end, Sakevich out? Uh, well, I mean, it depends on who's in charge. If you give it to the Bear Fight Brigade guys, they wanted to take it inside the first time, you know, but... Um I don't know. Maybe the maybe the them saying that they didn't want to you know offend the players or the coaches or whatever. Guess what? Don't worry about it because the players and the coaches aren't fans of the front office either. So, you're, thank you for you're saying. not upsetting it. Yeah, you're thank not you upsetting anybody. I mean, they're in agreement with you. <laughs> Trust me, they're in agreement with you. So, um, the sons of Ben, you know, they have obviously the loudest voice in the stadium. But guess what? There are only three thousand people or twenty five hundred or however many they get in the river end. You know, you're still going to have. 12k sitting there of Delco families and suburban families, soccer moms and whatnot. Sorry to use that term. I know people don't like it, but um, yeah, I mean, I would speak it's what, that, it's what that crowd is. Yeah, and you know, I love all the sons of Ben guys. You're talking about 3,000 people versus volumes, obviously, because they have the loudest voice. But you probably still get 12, 13, 14 who are probably, probably aren't into the team as much to really care or really partake in that. So, But, yeah, I mean, that's that's the way you do it. Or guess what? You don't go into the stadium at all, and you don't buy tickets, and you don't renew your season tickets and, and whatever. But you know what? Look, I mean, last night I think it was just about Casey made one more penalty kick than the Union did. And it's amazing because if the, the difference between that uh, making a miss is $190,000 at birth in the Champions League and the first trophy in franchise history. So, it was just a monumental swing for, for a win or loss last night, and unfortunately they ended up on the wrong side of it. As I said before, Kevin, I don't know what else I have to lose at this point um, in terms of my criticism doing doing. of the team over the years. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. I'm sure I'll see you again soon. And uh, we're going to take a break and then come back and talk about some happier things. We're going to talk about the NWSL title game tonight out in Portland with Stephanie Yang of SB Nation. You're listening to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. When it comes to the USA against Mexico, this game is different. As Michael Bradley puts it, the passion, the colors, the respect, the hate. Soccer Morning listeners, I'd like to invite you to join me and Jared Dubois this Saturday for the USA versus Mexico broadcast on Rabble.tv at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Pacific. With Rabble, the concept is simple. All you have to do is tune into the USA versus Mexico game on TV, 
Press the mute button and then head on over to Rabble.tv to listen to me and Jared on your desktop, through your iOS Android app, or through your mobile browser. Plus, before or during the game, you can join in by posting your questions or observations in the comments section. Or why don't you create your own broadcast, call one of your team's games. It's easy. Sign up for free today. Try it out. Join me and Jared this Saturday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern for the USA versus Mexico on Rabble.tv, where it's your team and your call. That was, I got to admit, that was a little cathartic for me. You all know how long I've been covering the union for. Um, it was nice to really get all that out of my system. I've been, been waiting for the right opportunity to do it. And this was it. Let's talk about some happier stuff, shall we? Let's talk about the National Women's Soccer League title game tonight. The Seattle Reign, the number one seed. FC Kansas City, the number three seed at Providence Park in Portland, Oregon, 9.30 Eastern on Fox Sports 1, 6.30 Pacific time in the Rose City where a very big crowd is going to be on hand, which is going to be great to see at a venue that is just about the perfect place to host the game. And to set the stage, somebody who I got to meet this summer at the Women's World Cup, Stephanie Yang of SB Nation, who is live uh, from Portland with us, where I, I know it's pretty much been a nonstop party out there. Stephanie, how much fun is it? amazing um just about everybody you can think of who covers women's soccer who's able to come has converged on portland and they all kind of got it going last night so it was a lot of fun i I wish i could be there obviously i have so many other work commitments in the open cup final I, i hope that someday um i'll get to cover an nwsl final or indeed simply an nwsl game in philadelphia um, I hope they get a team someday. I, I really believe that this would be a great market for it. Let's talk about this game tonight. Yeah. Obviously, there's going to be a lot of star power on the field. Megan Rapino and Hope Solo um, for the Seattle Reign. Lauren Holiday playing in her last ever professional soccer game for FC Kansas City. Can she go out with the title? Heather O'Reilly, Amy Rodriguez, Becky Sauerbrunn, arguably the best defender on the planet right now um if you if, if the general listenership stephanie who's out there who's listening to this show maybe they don't follow the nwsl as much as you and i do and i know i don't follow it as much as you do um if they're looking for recognizable names to watch tonight there's going to be plenty of them there's going to be heaps of national team players big time names on both teams <clears throat> i mean you mentioned a lot of them for FCKC, but on the rain, there's also Hope Solo, Megan Rapino. Um, yeah, so uh, there's big time names, but there's also some kind of a smaller time players who don't play small time, obviously. Their play is so important to their teams, but they just don't get as much recognition as the others because they're not national team names. And you and I have been talking about this, but I think two of those names, uh, one for the rain is Kim Little, who's a Scottish international. She might be a little more well-known. And uh, on SC Kansas City is the midfielder Erica Timrak. You know, Timrak uh, was on a list of players that I put together uh, with my colleague at the Philadelphia Inquirer, Lauren Green, who some of the women's soccer folks out there know well because she used to run her own women's soccer site, still does, in fact. She also writes for my blog as well. Um, we did a list of the top American players not to make the Women's World Cup team. We called it the coulda, shoulda, woulda list. And Erica Timrak was right there in the middle of it. And perhaps tonight people will get to see 
uh, the talent that she has and uh, that for, I, I hope personally, and I'm sure you do too, that her time is coming. I hope so too. Um, she's probably been waiting patiently for her time to come again. Um, I wouldn't say this has been the most revelatory season for Tim Rat. She just kind of kept her nose to the wheel. But if she has another good season with SC Casey or any club team, I really think she deserves at least a look, right? At least a look. And she's definitely on a short list of the top maybe five NWSL players who need to get called in to get evaluated again. And Kim Little, you know, I, I was fortunate. I was at the Reigns' last home game of the regular season because it was the same weekend that the Sounders were playing the Timbers. I was out there. I got to see the rain in person. Kim Little is such a spark plug in that midfield. She's such a fun player to watch. Kim Little is incredible to watch. You watch her. She has great awareness. She's got great speed. You know, she's kind of a small, I think she's about 5'5", five, five, maybe even smaller than that. But, um, yeah, she's just really fast and strong and really smart. That's the key. She's so smart. She sees plays developing that maybe others don't. And so she can either be good for uh, you know, a really smart pass into a lane that just the defense did not see developing, or she can be on the receiving end of that pass because she has some pretty good chemistry with her teammates in the midfield on the rain. That would be just Fishnock, Kilo Winters, and uh, possibly also Megan Rapino. Let's talk about the coaches in this game. I know that Jurgen Klinsmann doesn't like to put the spotlight on coaches in soccer. He likes to say it's a player's game, but both of these coaches are pretty big deals. And let's start with Vlatko Atkinovsky of FC Kansas City. Um, there are some very good coaches in the NWSL. I'm, I'm tempted to say that I think Atkinovsky is the best. I just My hedge is not knowing enough, all of the other coaches in the league, well enough to be certain. But I do think that if I were to make a list of potential candidates for successors to Jill Ellis, I did that earlier in the summer and then she got the contract extension. But even still now, when the day comes down the road, whenever that may be, I think Vlatko has U.S. national team head coaching potential in it. I think he might too. The thing with Ananovsky and Harvey is I do think sometimes Harvey gets credited more than him because she started at a lower spot than he did. If you look at the Reigns' first season, they had like a huge losing streak. It was something like 16 or 17 games. They couldn't put a win together, and she turned that around. She built it from the ground up. Whereas Andonovsky, he maybe had a starting point that was a little bit ahead of her. He had a roster that he didn't have to bring along quite as much, so maybe he doesn't get as much credit as he, as he should because he didn't create such a dramatic turnaround. But you see what he does he assembled his pieces, and then he used them perfectly. So I think that kind of talent on the national team, where you already have, you know, a group of 20, 30 of the best soccer players in the United States, he's the kind of person who comes in, looks at his chess pieces, and develops a strategy that works for them. He's not going to be trying to shove people around pegs into square holes. What a concept. Yeah, yeah. He'll play to people's strengths. And he'll, you know, keep the locker room on his side. He won't be losing players. Um, players seem to really respect him. So I think he would be good on a short list for the national team when the time comes. Laura Harvey. Um, Laura Harvey. One of the great personalities ever to grace women's soccer, especially in the United States. Um, 
there are people who can describe her probably in more flowery prose than I can out there on Twitter. And if you follow Stephanie on Twitter at Thrace, T-H-R-A-C-E, you will probably encounter some of them at some point. I'm just saying. But she is... Yeah, it's, it's hard not she's to. She's something special. She, I mean, I just talked about it. She took a Seattle team that was really struggling in the banding and turned them around, and now they've been playoff contenders two years in a row. That's an extreme turnaround from one season to the next, from starting at the bottom. Now they're here. And she does it with style, and she does it with, you know, if you want people to speak, uh, to be flowery about Laura Harvey, you don't need to come to me. Like, ask any of her players. <laughs> um, there were some media calls before the championship. And they would ask the players, you know, what it is about Harvey. And then you would get this, you know, five, ten minute long essay about how great Laura is and what she really does for the players. She really believes in them. She creates an atmosphere in Seattle that allows them to not just play, but to also learn. And I think that's actually kind of a cornerstone of what they've all said about Harvey, that she teaches them. She doesn't just coach. She takes them aside and says, all right, what are your problems? Let's work on them. And then she'll she'll really create like a long term project with players where for several weeks she'll teach them specifically how to be a better player. And I think that's why they all respect and admire and you know, really love Laura Harvey. And you know, she's not just some dry cardboard personality either, by the way. Kansas City. You're gonna see a really great game tonight. Uh, and I, I now let's yes. take a couple of minutes to to talk about the NWSL and where it's headed. We know it's headed for a fourth season and no professional women's league in the history, certainly at least in the modern history of the United States, has been able to say that. Um, but the, Jeff Plush, the commissioner, is under the gun right now. And the reason why he is is that since the Women's World Cup, for all the attention that it brought to women's soccer, to the players and Yes, indeed, to the league, even if not as much to the league as we might have wanted. They have not signed any new new corporate sponsors since the Women's World Cup. All they've done is re-up with Nike, their existing sponsor, for more money, certainly. But um, you and I and a lot of other people, Stephanie, are waiting, hoping, I dare say even expecting, more commercial sponsors to come on board to bring more money into the women's game to make it sustainable. And Jeff Plush was asked about it on a conference call they did with reporters a couple of days ago and why it hasn't happened yet. And he got a little prickly and it wasn't a good look on his part. No, it absolutely wasn't. And so Howard Meddahl from The Guardian asked him this question and tried to get him to explain, you know, what's going on with sponsorships and it's not just an isolated incident either. This is like part of a continued pattern of kind of vague, hand wavy sort of pseudo business. Like, you know, there's stuff going on behind the scenes. We're in several talks right now. But then there's this added layer that you mentioned with Plush where he got a little bit, you know, kind of spiky about it. Where he's like, I'm here to talk about the end of this championship, which if he's not there to answer questions about the league, they already had Laura Harvey, Vladko Adonofsky, and a player from each team on that call, which kind of made, in my opinion, plush a little bit redundant. Now, he did reveal that NWSL wanted to build around the final and kind of make it a big, week-long event in the future, but there really wasn't anything else 
going on, I think, between like league and championship that he needed to elucidate. So he may have shot himself in the foot a little bit being there, being available for questions where anybody could ask him anything um, about the league that he runs and is supposed to be improving. You know, he said he he said a while back he was going to join Twitter. He hasn't yet, and that's obviously only one small measure of things out of many. Um, but until the Women's World Cup, he was pretty hard to find. After the Women's World Cup, yeah. he's made appearances. He's had press conferences. He had one, coincidentally, the night that I was in Seattle. Um, so I got to ask him some questions. He is compared, fairly or unfairly, and sometimes both, to Don Garber, the commissioner of Major League Soccer. And for all of the problems that people have with Garber, for all the flaws that MLS has, and I've got lots of pro-rel people tweeting at me today, I will tell you right now, I have plenty of problems with MLS. I've said them before, and you all know it. Um, Don Garber plays the role of commissioner very well. He is everywhere at all times. He is at games. He is at conferences, business meetings. He you know, jets around with the leaders of television networks and the, and the other soccer leagues in the world, and he sells his product to the hilt. You might not like it, but I think even his biggest critics would admit that he does a very good job of being a commissioner. And as I said, there are some ways in which it's not fair to hold Jeff Plush to that standard because women's soccer faces a different set of circumstances in a lot of ways, but I do think it's fair to look at how Garber plays the role of commissioner and look at how Plush does it and say that Plush doesn't quite measure up in that way. Yeah, I think there's ways to emulate Don Garber, but on an NWSL budget, but kind of, you know, set the same tone where you're a booster for the league. You should always be on message with NWSL, NWSL, how, you know, you guys want to get in on this? Let me tell you how you can get in on NWSL. But, like, he should be constantly... You said Twitter, he hasn't joined, and that's kind of a small thing, but I don't think it's that incidental. Social media is huge. It's a huge way of interacting with the fan base, and it would probably increase transparency in the league by about 100%. I'm not even exaggerating, because the league is so opaque right now, and it, you just get the commissioner on onto Twitter. It would be this giant leap forward in public relations for them, even if he has you know some intern only tweeting official things off of his account. So there's definitely ways to be as available and in the public eye as much as he can in that Don Garber method. I think someone, it might have been Kevin McCauley at SB Nation, mentioned that he needs to kind of be the Dana White of NWSL, minus kind of the gross sexism. <laughs> he, has to be, he has to be a promoter. He can't just be this business guy in a suit who's always saying, you know, it's behind-the-scenes stuff. I'll let you know when we have an announcement. I don't have anything to say to you right now. That's, all that does is create this like smoke cloud around the league of expectation and not much else. He's got to be out there really pushing the league on anyone who will take his phone call. Maybe he is, but we don't know. So all we can do is go off the information that we have, which is not a lot. I'm getting the time warning from my producer, Trevor Hayward. Um, and I do want to take a couple of calls about various things. Uh, whether the Open Cup or the or uh, the NWSL in a few minutes. Uh, so, Steph, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is for a prediction sure. tonight if you want to make one. 
I initially had SDKC edging Seattle rain, maybe two to one. And then yesterday, Laura Harvey went, oh, yeah, by the way, my star four, Beverly Yanis, is 100%. And Yanis has kind of been, you know, recovering up until now. But she said she's ready to go. So I think Harvey's going out there full steam ahead. She's starting Yanis. And if that doesn't edge Seattle, at the very least, I think it makes it so close that either Seattle wins by a goal or that they might push all the way to penalty kicks. Please don't take me, everyone, if that actually happens. Having endured a penalty shootout last night, um, I don't wish it upon you or the other members of the media who have to write on deadline, but it certainly would make for a lot of drama. Uh, Stephanie, thanks so much for coming on the show. Have a great time tonight at the game. We'll all be watching, as I said, on Fox Sports 1 at 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific, the Seattle Reign and FC Kansas City. Uh, We will come back uh, on Soccer Morning. We're going to take your calls in a bit. We also have the goalkeeper of the U.S. Open Cup winning Sporting Kansas City, Tim Melia, coming up to talk about his heroics last night. This is Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on WorldSoccerTalk.com. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com, sitting in for Jason Davis for a couple of days as he takes a well-deserved vacation. We had a reader, a listener, or a reader, or whatever you want to say. I'm used to saying reader. It's a listener, of course. Ask uh, where the Sirius XM show is. It is uh, taking a break along with Jason's vacation. We are the web show only on the days that I am hosting. Uh, we also had a reader ask when there will be promotion and relegation in American soccer which I would say enjoy your breakfast. Um, we are joined now on the phone by the conquering hero of last night's U.S. Open Cup final, Tim Melia of Sporting Kansas City, their goalkeeper, uh, who stood tall throughout the 120 minutes of play and then the penalty shootout. Tim, good morning and congratulations. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. So, uh, first of all, the easiest question, take us through what it's like to be a goalkeeper in a penalty shootout in a cup final. Um, you just try to do as much preparation as you can before. You try to learn the tendencies going into the PK shootout. We watch a lot of video. We watch past PK shootouts with the players, and you just try to prepare yourself the best you can and then make a decision at that moment, and hopefully you go the right direction. How much studying can you do in advance of a player's tendencies? Because obviously... You study that player, and then that player is going to know you're studying him, and they both try to go back and forth and figure out what the other's going to do. Um, I, that becomes irrelevant. You have to just try to go off their tendencies. Um, in a bigger pr- pressure situation, most players won't change what they're used to because it's where they're most comfortable. And if they do hit a good enough PK, you're most likely not going to save it anyway. So. For me, preparation and video and watching their approach, plan foot and things like that are huge leading into penalty shootouts. And our team and our goalkeeper coach does an excellent job preparing us for situations like that. So for those of us who have not um, played professional soccer and, and been involved in professional soccer and thus probably won't be in a penalty shootout like that in our lives, what is the secret to scoring a penalty kick because the ones last night, almost all of them, were ter- of terrific quality. They really were. Our team did an exceptional job. I mean, 
they kept putting it in places where even when the goalkeeper McCarthy was doing an excellent job reading the direction of the play, but they, the balls were just hit well enough where they were almost unsavable. Uh, I was actually extremely impressed with the quality of our team's penalties last night, and they did a really good job. So it's now what? Uh, I believe three trophies in four, year, four years for for Kansas City under Peter Vermes, two Open Cups and an, an MLS Cup. Uh, I read the quotes that you gave uh, to Brian Strauss of Sports Illustrated last night about coming into the culture of this club and how they've built not just a winning team in the present tense, but a sustainable winning organization over multiple years. And I'd love it if you could share with our listeners some of your perspective on that, because I think people are are well aware across the United States that Sporting Kansas City has done something really special. Yeah, they really have. They built it from the inside out. Uh, Peter and company and ownership has done such a good job creating a blueprint which allows players to be pulled in and out. And, you know, there's such a system here. Everyone knows what they're doing. Everyone knows their job. Everybody knows their responsibility. And that's a very difficult thing to do year to year. And they've done such a good job being able to uh, identify a system like that. You know, a lot of people have, have for a while now said a lot of very nice things about Peter Vermes, and I've, I've made no secret of the fact. I've said it publicly, so I'll say it here. And I said it to him last night. I think he has U.S. national team potential down the road. I think he's that good a coach. Um, for you playing for him, you know, working with him, learning from him every day, what's it like? Um, again, he's just, he, for me, he's such a good man manager, which I think in the professional game is the most important thing. Um, coaches need to be able to identify talent and then get the best of that talent out of the player, which comes into managing the player individually. And for me, that's Peter's best quality is he knows how to take a player, you know, put him under his wing and develop them and put them in the best situation to succeed. And I think he truly does have potential to move on to the national team. And obviously everyone would be sad to see him go, but he is more than qualified for the position. You know, I asked I asked Peter this question last night, and I'll ask I'll ask you too. I'd like to get your perspective. You know, there has there has been a lot of turnover with Kansas City over the years. You know, Dom, uh, not Dwyer, Kai Kamara uh, is one. C.J. Sapong, obviously, who you played against last night, is another. Um, but this team has has developed this consistency, and now they're going back into the Concacaf Champions League with a chance to take things to the next level. What now do you think is the next step for this team? I think the team just needs to stick to its roots. Um, they've created such a good blueprint, and as long as they continue to go on the path that they have, I think we're going to have success in CONCACAF and other tournaments like that. Uh, the quality is here. This talent in this group this year is pretty exceptional, in my opinion, of all the teams I've played on. I've been on a couple different clubs where – the ability to win trophies and, you know, compete in CONCACAF and make a good push in a playoffs run is all there. So I just think they need to continue on the path they're on. They're going to strengthen the team. Uh, nature of the beast of the MLS with the salary cap, it is difficult to hold on to players for a long term. And I think they did a really good job here of identifying who they wanted to keep, keeping the core together and going on from there. 
You know, I think the the last big question that I will ask you um, for people who don't know about your the rise in your career, you played for Rochester in 2008 in the USL, I believe. Then you came uh, to RSL, I believe, in 2010 and 2011, and then Chivas USA, and now to Sporting Kansas City. You were a pool goalkeeper for a while, too, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? I was. What is that experience like? You know, I write a lot about the MLS salary data, and I always make sure to highlight the pool goalkeepers and the unsigned players because they sometimes go unrecognized, and people don't always get to hear a lot about the lives they lead relative to the designated players and even the guys like Matt Beasler and Graham Zussi or Dom Dwyer, who are the stalwarts of a given club and are there and, and have a consistent base and can settle somewhere. What has this rise now to prominence been like for you? Uh, it's been surreal. Um, I mean, to be given the opportunity I've been given here, you know, I came in here as a backup, and coaches don't pull the trigger on goalkeepers like Peter did, and I'm very appreciative of that. I mean, I think the game that ended up putting me in, it wasn't even a bad result the game before. I think we had tied in Houston, and Peter just brought me into the office, and he was just like, hey, this is your opportunity. Run with it. And fortunately, the game went well, and I haven't come out since then. So uh, to go back to your original question with the pool goalkeeper, uh, it's, it's a difficult and very awkward situation it's a situation where you're not truly attached to any team i mean you're brought into teams on an emergency basis and they're telling you you know you're part of the team you're this and that but at the end of the day you're really not and it becomes a mental grind and i try to just use it as a personal growth experience and that this is this is the situation i'm in right now i'm going to try to just make as many contacts as i can and prepare as if I'm potentially going to play and fortunately it worked out where I did well enough during my training stint with Sporting Kansas City where they wanted to bring me back the following year. Well, Tim, congratulations again uh, to you, to your team, to your fans uh, who pack out Sporting Park all the time and make for a great atmosphere. It is, as we all know, one of the great success stories uh, in MLS history and in modern American soccer history. And best wishes the rest of the way as you now get back into the MLS Cup playoff race. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Tim Melia, the goalkeeper for Sporting Kansas City, who was the hero last night, uh, both in regulation with some big saves and then in the penalty kick shootout of Sporting Kansas City, beat the Philadelphia Union uh, to win the Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup. We're going to take a quick break, and then I am going to stick my feet in the water of taking some phone calls. I'm a little afraid of what's to come, but I think I can handle it. This is Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. Welcome back to Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk. I'm Jonathan Tannenwald, sitting in for Jason Davis as he takes a couple of days for vacation. Coming to you live from Philadelphia this morning where the soccer fans are up in arms. I think, well, actually, you know what? I wonder if they are up in arms, and let's find out. Let's take some calls here on Soccer Morning. Do you want to talk about the union? Do you want to talk about Sporting Kansas City? You want to talk about the NWSL final tonight? You want to talk about the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying tournament uh, for the U.S. men's under-23 team and what is at stake for them? Give me a call. 646-832-3909 is the number. Again, 646-832-3909. Let's see what comes along here. 
A reminder, there is no serious XM show while Jason is on vacation. Um, looking at Twitter for some questions here for a minute. And it's a bunch of pro-rail tinfoil people. So, okay. Uh, Roberto in Connecticut. Various topics, it says. I push the button. And Roberto in Connecticut is on the air. Good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Jonathan. It's nice to have you on, uh, Soccer Morning. I've been a good fan of you listening to um, you getting interviewed by Jason a lot, so it's great to have you as a host. Well, thank you kindly. From that, from it. I'm sorry? Thank you kindly. What do you got? Um, yeah, with the announcement of the U.S. Uh, national team being cut to 23 today, who do you think gets cut, in your opinion? Oh, gosh. i got to be honest with you. Um, I have some vague memories of who is on that 35-player roster. Um, I don't remember every single name because I've been doing so many other things soccer-wise since it came out. I apologize. Um, I do have a lot of questions, though. I, I think the area to watch is going to be the back line. Does he still? Does Jurgen Klinsmann still go with John Brooks and Ventura Alvarado? Um it's a big game, you know, I, I just, and look, I think people know that I get tired at times of Jurgen Klinsmann sort of talking down. The hell with the media. He talks down to all of you, too, you know? He does. And I, I want to see some action. I want to see results. I don't think that's too much to ask. And I think that that backline decision is going to tell us a lot about where his priorities are right now and just how big a game this is for. No, I mean, I personally think that maybe he should go for experience, especially for a, a team against Mexico, like Matt Bees or Jeff Cameron at the back line, and maybe use um, maybe some youth players, maybe use Ventura or, or John Brooks of those players for the upcoming qualifiers next month. That's what I personally think. It, it makes sense to me, but, you know, what makes sense to me isn't what matters. What makes sense to you and all the rest of us isn't what matters. Only Jurgen Klinsmann's opinion about these things seems to matter. Roberto, thanks very much. No, no problem. All right. Uh, next up is Brian in Philadelphia, who wants to talk about the union in the Open Cup. Uh, I've seen a Brian of this name spelling ways before. I don't know if it's somebody who I know. Let's find out. You're on the air. Hey, what's up, John? How you doing? How are you? More, how, how are you is more important than how I am. Well, upset but par for the course for the union because the, uh, the substitutions last night were just baffling to put McCarthy in at the very end of the game versus maybe putting in IU to stretch the field a little bit at the end. I mean, I, I didn't get certain substitutions there. Uh, let me tell you baffling. I, John McCarthy is clearly a penalty kick specialist. And I said this in a video conversation with my Inquirer colleague, Mark Narducci, uh, that's going to be up on Philly.com later today. There is a certain kind of mentality to a one-off game. And I'm not saying that Andre Blake doesn't have it, but it's a skill that McCarthy has demonstrated. And I think you have to say he made that save and therefore the decision worked. Now, the move that I would have made, instead of Andrew Wenger for C.J. Sapong, I would have done Stephen Vittoria for Marisa Du. I think that that Wenger for Sapong was made. I know Jim Curtin said that Sapong was getting tired, was running out of steam. 
I think he made that move with the penalty shootout in mind. Now, obviously, Wenger's had his penalty saved. But I'm starting to think about guys who can take penalties well. Um, and, and as we saw how good the penalties were last night, I, I, I would have maybe done Stephen Vittoria for Marisa Du, but I'm not, I'm not going to criticize the substitutions otherwise all that much. I don't know. It just it seemed like at the end of the game, though, that we needed a little bit more speed to help stretch the field. And Latou looked a little bit gassed as well. Um, well, you can't. Yeah, I, like yeah, I would not take Latou off because he's the team's best penalty taker. Agreed. But there could have been another move to, to get Ayuk on the field just to add a little bit more spice at the end of the game because that, that just seemed like they were going for penalties. I get it, no. but. I'd rather win in regulation and, and overtime versus taking into PKs because then you know it's a crapshoot at that point. You you said it's par for the course. I want to ask you: Is par for the course acceptable? No, to, to, we're not. We're actually not renewing our season tickets next year either. Uh-huh. We're we're done with, with Sugarman and the fact that he won't go out and spend. I mean, you, you see it in every single article that comes out to you about how they're not going to be a buy club but, but a build club. But the question is, how do they build? They haven't brought any homegrown players up of note and how long is that project going to take another five years i hope not i think they've got some kids in, in sebastian Elney and guys like that who are who are getting close they're maybe a year away and and look i you know me well enough i've run out of patience with this ownership uh, as i said this morning i ran out of patience with nick Sakevich a long time ago um but if there's anybody down at ppl park who was listening to the show this morning You've got a caller into the show here who is not renewing season tickets. I hope that uh, I hope somebody's paying attention. Brian, thanks very much. I do too. Yep, no problem. Man. 646-832-3909. We're go- we can go until just about the top of the hour. Um I I'd be interested to hear what you folks think in, about the uh, the CONCACAF qualifying tournament. There's some talent on this US team. Uh, and obviously there is some real pressure on them to make exposure for these players um so i'd like to hear what you all think if there are any uh any women's soccer fans out there uh who want to jump in on the nwsl final on some of the stuff that stephanie and i talked about earlier in the show it would be great to hear from you this unfortunately is all a long way of saying that i don't have anybody in the call queue right now come on folks i know you're out there I saw one earlier who called and then dropped the call. I think I know who it was. And uh, if that particular person calls back, um, perhaps he and I will have a little bit of a conversation. (sighs) I'm surviving so far, right? I got to do this for three days. You know, and I I do have some radio experience in the past. As you all know, I hosted Soccer Morning last year, right around the time of the Open Cup final, actually. And I worked for some other outlets prior to that. I do. Uh, I want to take a moment to thank my colleagues at Philly.com, uh, my editors Lou Rubito and Mike Tapel, and my my co-pilots on the desk, as I would call them, Justin Clue and Jerry Gall, for giving me the time and flexibility to step away from the hot seat of running the site a little bit, um, so that I can host the show today and uh, tomorrow and Monday. Again, six four six eight three two three nine zero nine. I think Rick and Philly is out there somewhere. I saw him call earlier. I don't know if he's going to call back. Let's see if we have any questions coming in on Twitter. 
Uh, we have one question. When will, ML- when will there be promotion and relegation? Uh, enjoy your breakfast. We have another question. When will there be promotion and relegation? Well, and we have a third question. When will there be promotion and relegation? Look, I'm not against it. I think it's impractical right now, but I, I don't like this sort of you're either with us or against us mentality about pro rel in this country. You're a zealot or you're banned. You're a heretic. There are middle grounds on these things. And there's a way to have the conversation. I fear, though, that the well has been so poisoned by a small minority of loudmouths that we can't have the conversation and it's too bad. Uh, where is Jason? Is Precky involved? No. Uh, sorry, is Petke involved was the question. Uh, sorry, it's P-R-E-K-E is what the guy said. That's what confused me. Um, I think you mean Precky. I don't know where Precky is. I haven't seen him. We have a call. Yordo in Philadelphia who is on right now. Good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, John. How are you? Well, more importantly, how are you? Uh, well, I'm a Philadelphia fan, so I'm picking up a scab. But, um, well, I'm first, not I from say, here, but hey, I thanks. understand it by now. Yeah. Well, first I want to say thanks for hosting. You always do a good job when you come in. It's always interesting to hear your insights. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right. And so, yeah, for me, two things are well, I'm picking at. One, to get, I guess, really specific is, again, with the late subs. To sub Andrew Wenger with, what, less than five minutes left in the game? What do you expect anyone to do with less than five minutes left? Especially when you're facing a team that you know is tired. Why not give someone, I don't know, 15 minutes maybe? Because he's a better penalty taker than some of the other guys? Now, obviously his was saved, but um, at that that point... 15 minutes ahead. Oh, sure. No, look, if I was going to make the adjustment... Yeah, if I was going to make the Adufatoria move, I probably would have done it earlier. But as I said to Kevin earlier in the show, when you look at the union's bench and the drop-off from the start, the caliber of the players in the starting lineup to the caliber players on the bench, almost no matter who he lines up on the bench, does it not make you hesitate a little bit? You know what? It makes me hesitate, but again, when I know... I'm facing someone that's been there for 100 minutes, 110 minutes. I'm happy to get fresh legs and a happy some penalty taker out there. But give him more than five minutes. Well, I, I think at that point the move was made to, to get his penalty lineup in order. I, I'm with you, but I... I don't know. I just... Yeah. I don't, think that's, what, I don't think that's what cost him. I really don't. Oh, I don't think it's what cost him. I just think it's, you know, I think you're right at that point. In management's head, we're already saying we're going to penalties. It wasn't, let's try to squeeze a goal in. Oh, let's throw one last wave at him. I wonder, I wonder are, uh, you know, our, last, our last caller was from Philadelphia as a season ticket holder. Are you? Uh, no, I'm not. You're not? Okay. All right. I'm one, I'm, I'm one who just goes down now and with my friends. Although, to be fair... This year, we haven't gone to a single game. Did you go last night? I did not go last night, no. I couldn't. I would have if it were scheduled somewhat differently. All right. Hey, thanks for calling. All right, thank you.
I got a tweet from Rick in Philly, and I will, I will tell you all. You can follow him at Richard McGovern. Uh, it's exactly as you think you would spell it phonetically. Who says, apologies, I just got nothing. I, we've defeated Richard McGovern. We have defeated, ladies and gentlemen, one of the all-time idealists I have ever met among American soccer fans. He's done. He has given up. He will go and watch Ajax this weekend play PSV Eindhoven because it's going to be on Univision Deportes, and hopefully that will cheer him up. Uh, here we go. With a collar. Uh, there. Got to push the right button. Hi, man, Houston. Good morning. Hi. Hey, Jonathan. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing fine. I got, I got to tell you, and, and I was going to say this. This is nothing against you individually or any other college, but I've noticed this about talk radio. People always ask, how are you doing? And eventually the host just gets asked, how are you doing, ten times. And so I, I'm, I don't know that I can come up with ten different answers to how you're doing, unfortunately. And again, it's nothing against you individually. I shouldn't be taking it out on you. But if there are folks who are thinking about calling in in the future, just, just keep that in mind. Anyway, apologies. How, what's up? Uh, it's completely understandable. Um, I just called a couple of thoughts about the uh, qualifying, uh, the under-23s that start today. Sure. Um, so first, first question, I'll come right out and ask, do you think that the boys will qualify for next summer's Olympics? I do. Uh, I think they've got talent. Um, and I think they've, they've got a lot of these guys have the drive and the desire and they want to do it. I think they will. All right. Um, and I was looking at the roster and, you know, uh, you know, I read a bunch of articles and, you know, everyone saying that, you know, yes, this team is talented, but that the main uh, concerns are the lack of options at fullback right now. I know they said that they're thinking about playing Dylan Serna at right back when he's been a winger his whole career. And then the uh, lack of width in the midfield. Do you think that those could possibly be big hindrances to the team, possibly not making it to the, the tournament? Well, I, I don't think it's going to be enough for them to not make the tournament. I'm actually uh, I'm in the middle of pulling up the roster right now. I, I know that there's a lot there's a lot of emphasis on the central midfield with this team, and I just wonder. Maybe I'm being naive here. Maybe I'm channeling my inner Will Parchman here. You know, wouldn't it be nice to see these guys outpossess the opponent? You know, play some good passing soccer. Guys like Luis Gill, guys like Gideon Zalalem. Um, wouldn't it be nice to see that? Well, I feel like we had the same problem four years ago, you know, in Nashville. We had the, you know, we had all the possession, but, you know, there were no clear-cut chances. So isn't that, like, yeah, but, isn't well, that a worry? Yes. True, but I think that there are, there are guys on this team who can create chances. We know that Zalalem can distribute well. We know that Jordan Morris can finish them. Um, you know, if your spine is Emerson Hyman and either Luis Gill or Jordan Morris, I'd imagine that you're going to be able to create some chances um, with something like that. Um, I just thought about because you said his name, but what is what is your opinion on Jordan Morris? Do you do you think that he's that he's ready to go pro? I think I think personally, what he's doing right now at Stanford is great because he went, you know, 
you can have a life after football, but oh yes, you know, yes, and um, so you, you know, so you, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm sorry. That's um, the main thing, but, you know, you didn't have a life after football. I was incredibly fortunate. I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I understand the value that getting the caliber of a Stanford education or any four-year college degree can do for you when your professional sporting career is over. And I know that in Europe, they don't value it the same way. And boy, are we told by the technical director of the U.S. men's national team that we've got to change our value system a little bit. I get that. But you're really supposed to deny a kid a shot at a Stanford education? If it was your kid, if it was your kid, would you, and you had that opportunity for your kid, would you say no? I mean, look. 100% stay in school. Well, I, I, I see no problem. There's, uh, look, it, it, nothing's it like, guys leave the NBA, you know, for the NBA early. They leave for MLS early. I get it. I know the Sounders want to sign him. Um, I hope they do. They certainly have the resources if that's not the problem. Um, I personally, if a kid wants to get a college degree, I'm not going to fight him. If, and if the kid is somebody like, isn't Jordan Morris's dad, perhaps somebody who's in Seattle can help me out here. Isn't Jordan Morris's dad, the, the head of uh, the head, head of the medical staff for the Sounders or something like that. So yeah, it's I not, it's not like, like he doesn't know. Position. It's not like he doesn't know what the stakes are here. Right. And I'm not going to argue against what Jordan Morris is doing. But I do. I certainly think he's got pro potential. And I would like to see him wearing a Sounders jersey at some point down the road. Okay. Um, okay, back on to the under 23s. Um, okay, so. Final question. Do you think that they'll make it to the final of the Olympic tournament at least? Do I think they'll make the final of the Olympic tournament? Oh, boy. Talk oh, to oh, me no, after I'm the draw. I'm sorry, the, the qualifying tournament. I oh, um, I apologize. Do I think they make the final of the qualifying tournament? Yes, because I think they qualify for the Olympics. And the winners of the semifinals are the teams that go to the Olympics. So, And do you think it'll be Mexico we're playing in that uh, qualifying final? I don't know. I, I, I haven't even, you know, done a draw out yet to see who they might play in the semis. And that's the game, you know, that matters more. And I, I would be very surprised if it's Mexico in the semis. Uh, but as I said, I haven't looked all the way through the bracket yet, so I'm not sure how it's going to play out. Hey, thanks for calling, man. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you for having me on. Sure. Bye. One more. Uh, Richard in Philly. Wants to, Richard wants to talk about Philly and the Olympics. And it's a 609 area code, so I think the guy's from South Jersey. Um, Richard, good morning. How are you? Hey, John. Hey, John. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are things on the other side of the Ben Franklin Bridge this morning? It's all right. It's uh, Richard. You know, we talked on Twitter that was uh, about the NWSL a couple weeks ago. Yeah, sure. What's up? Uh, I wasn't going to talk about the union, but anything I can talk about, you either all been said or I'm too incoherent to yell at you this morning. So <laughs> I want to talk about the 
I'll wait till the, I'll, I'll call you back tomorrow about the union. I was going to talk about back back to the Olympics. Um, you said the qualified, so I guess the and I will look ahead to Rio 2016. Who who do you think will be the three overage players the U.S. will pick up? You think? Oh boy. Oh. And I guess the well, good part will be will Klinsman will Klinsman tell um, Herzog bring these guys to help the U23s or bring these guys in since it's during World Cup qualifying. I need these guys to get reps for World Cup qualifying. Uh boy, that's a tough one. I got to go back and look at how the the, quali- the there's none of the qualifiers are during the middle of the summer, right? I don't remember as to whether any of the qualifiers are during the Olympics. I don't think they are. You know, historically, one of the three overage players has been a goalkeeper. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case again. If it's Tim Howard or Brad Guzan to maybe try to mentor Zach <laughs> Steffen even just a little bit more. Um, perhaps uh-huh. a striker to help finish things up top. And then from there, who knows? You know, I'd I know say maybe a midfielder that's captain. I think maybe a midfielder who's, who's going to be captain, which I guess. Who could be the guy that, that brings veteran presence to the team? Um, I don't know. I, 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 think, I, I don't think it would be a captain. I think it would be somebody who would, okay. who would allow a Will Trap or Emerson Hyman or somebody like that to be the captain and be a player and help teach but not overshadow. You know? Okay. And who that might be, I don't know. i got to get off the air in a minute because I've got my producer uh, telling me that it's time. Richard, thanks very much for calling, and thanks to all of you for listening to Soccer Morning today. Thanks to Tim Mealy of Sporting Kansas City, Kevin Kincaid of KYW, CBS Philadelphia, and Stephanie Yang of SB Nation. Uh, I'm Jonathan Tannenwald from Philly.com, sitting in for Jason Davis today and tomorrow and Monday here on Soccer Morning on World Soccer Talk.